The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. We know that uh, the principle in the Psalms is that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. That principle is true throughout both the Old and New Testament. Uh, just because Christ came to the cross does not negate the principle of confession of sin and the importance of recovering fellowship. Only in fellowship with the Lord do we have uh, an unhindered relationship with the Holy Spirit who is in the process of teaching us doctrine, helping us to understand the truth so that we can apply it in our lives, and He is the one who produces spiritual growth in our lives. So we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, prepared to study His Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can come to your word, that your word has absolute truth. Your word reveals to us everything we need to know in order to have abundant life, a life filled with joy and happiness, a life of stability, a life of inner happiness, a life of tranquility, a life that despite all of the trends of history, despite all of the onslaughts in the cosmic system, despite all of the testing and adversity which we go through, we still know that we can have this peace, this calm, this tranquility because it is based on an understanding of truth and doctrine is what gives us that stability. Lord, now as we continue our study, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we would see how they apply in our own lives and to our own thinking that we might continue to grow and advance in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to Judges chapter 20. Judges chapter 20, and we continue this last episode in the book of Judges. Now, we, we need to put ourselves back in place here as to what's going on in Judges. The theme of Judges is that there was no king 
in the land. By that, it sort of has a double meaning. There was before the monarchy, before Saul, before God had established a king over the land. So there was, uh, but there was a second meaning, and that is that God, who is the king in the theocratic structure of the Mosaic law, is not being honored or recognized as God, as the God of the covenant with Israel. Remember, God has entered into a covenant with Israel. It, the Mosaic Covenant is a uh, bilateral covenant. That means it was a conditional covenant entered into between God and the nation. God had promised to bless the nation if they would do certain things, and there was disciplinary clauses in there if they disobeyed Him. And Judges is the dark side. Judges is, in a sense, also the picture of the carnal Christian, the believer who is not functioning under God's procedures and God's plan. Judges is a picture of what happens when the believer goes into what we call reversionism, when he uh, reverses his spiritual growth and begins to take on the thinking and the characteristics of the unbeliever so that if he stays in that position for very long, he begins to think and act just like an unbeliever. Now, there are two things that we need to think of when we think of judges, sort of a two-tiered application. The first tier of application is follows the theme of the writer of Judges. And his theme, his message is to explain how a nation goes from spiritual victory and spiritual maturity and a nation that is oriented to the plan of God, a nation that understands doctrine, focused on the faith rest drill under Joshua, has a uh, large level of victory and conquest over the land in that generation. And then by the end of this book, they function and operate in a manner that's no different from the Canaanites. They were supposed to have conquered, annihilated, completely displaced in the land. And for all practical purposes, Israel has now become Canaan. And that is a picture of any nation. And so from there, we can derive many principles that apply nationally as to how a nation or a culture or a group can go from spiritual, a spiritual high point to a uh, spiritual low point. You can apply that to a church. You can apply that to any congregation, denominational group. It, it has many patterns there that, that are applicable across the board. But it also is something that applies to us in terms of sanctification. One thing that I haven't stressed too much and is usually missed comes under the, the category of, the, uh, pro, of progressive revelation. Progressive revelation looks at the life of Israel We'll draw out this timeline on the overhead. This is the life of the nation Israel. And Israel, by application, represents the individual believer because the nation as a whole is a, called a redeemed nation. They are God's firstborn. So even though not everyone in Israel is a believer, and I'm not saying that, the nation as a whole is to reflect principles about the individual believer in the church age. So Israel is regenerated typologically when they are redeemed from slavery. They are, prior to uh, the exodus, in slavery to Egypt. That is comparable to the believer being in slavery to the sin nature. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we're all under the penalty of sin, of spiritual death for sin. And so that time of their slavery in Egypt is tantamount to the unbeliever. That's the parallel. It's a type of the unbeliever in slavery to sin. Redemption took place at the Exodus. 
and the uh, walking through the Red Sea is analogous, is a type of the believer's baptism with Christ, uh, baptism by the Holy Spirit into Christ at salvation. So everything subsequent to uh, exit to the Exodus, everything subsequent to uh, the crossing of the Red Sea in the life of Israel is a picture of the post-salvation spiritual life. And that tells us that its application has to do with the sanctification of the believer. So when we look at these things, we have to think in terms of this multi-tier of application. That there is, we have to understand what the text says. That's interpretation. What does the text say and what does the text mean? So first we have to correctly interpret what's going on. And we have to do that before we can get into application. And there's so many different levels of application in these last two or three chapters of, um, of Judges that I, when I first hit it a couple of weeks ago and I scanned over it, it's a difficult section for many reasons. I thought, well, I can probably cover this in a week or two, and now I'm thinking that if I can get it finished this week or next week, that will be a miracle, because the more I'm into it, the more I see the subtleties of the author. He's really trying to get us to focus our attention on certain things that are happening here and to pay attention to these things, but he does it through a lot of literary devices. He does it through uh, subtle use of Hebrew words and phrases that are not always apparent at first reading. So it takes a tremendous amount of um, detailed analysis in order to pick up on these things. Now, what we've seen so far at the end here in these last five chapters of Judges is that this is an appendix to the book. The, the, the basic theme of the book set forth in the first three chapters, at least up to chapter uh, 3, verse 5. Then from 3.6 to the end of 16, the focus is on the leadership. And they get the leaders they deserve. Any nation usually gets the leaders they deserve. And we see God's control of his, the history of Israel, despite the fact that most of the time they are in rebellion, they're in reversionism, they're rejecting God, they're forgetting the historical acts of God in history at the Exodus and, uh, the deliver- and during the wilderness wanderings and God's miraculous provision for Israel despite their carnality. He always took care of them, and that reminds us that God's logistical grace, His life support grace is always there even when we're in rebellion. So, it's, so often we think when we're out of fellowship that God's forgotten about us. No, just that the sanctifying ministry is not operational. The discipline ministry is operational. And that's what we see indicated more and more in Judges is that God is still involved in, dis, in leading and directing Israel, not because of what Israel is doing, but this, in many cases despite what they are doing. And God is often using these events to discipline the nation. So we see the critique, the indictment of the leadership in those periods. And these are not great men, as we've seen, going from, from uh, Othniel to the gradual decline all the way down till we hit Samson. We see that there is a gradual degradation of leadership in the land because they are apostatizing from the truth. And so what we see is that the core causative factor in history is not economics, it's not military, it's it's not uh, trade, it's not any of these other factors that people normally focus on in your history classes. In fact, this is one of the most insightful books to understand the philosophy of history and analysis of history is that the ultimate causative factor for any group, any 
culture, any nation, is how they respond to the truth of God's Word. And what we normally see is a, a pattern of deterioration. They start off positive, and then they follow this same general pattern. And that is also true, I find, in individual lives. So the, that midsection deals with the leadership. Then 17 and 18 deals with the spiritual apostasy, how they went into a pseudo-religion that had the name of Yahweh plastered all over it. And we can't stress that enough. I can't harp on that enough. Because so often that's exactly what happens in our world today is that we have denominations and we have, uh, uh, we have parachurch organizations and we have television evangelists and, and we have even non-Christian uh, sects, that's S-E-C-T-S, not S-E-X, just wanted to make sure your mind was on the right thing this morning non-Christian sects and cults that are using Christian verbiage. Christian, they are, Satan is, a, is the master counterfeiter. And Satan is a master at using orthodox terminology, biblical verbiage, in order to mask his operation so that there is this veneer of orthodoxy, use of all kinds of Christian terms and symbols in order to demonstrate this. In fact, one of the things that we're going to do, I don't know where, where Al is, he needs to pay attention to this. I've just ordered some bulletin inserts from a, a church that produces these down in Washington, D.C. that are on Mormonism. And the reason I did this is somebody emailed me an article this last week on what's going on in the Mormon church. The whole issue in the next, I think the next Newsweek is the cover story is on Mormonism. And, of course, I'm demonstrating the fact that I'm completely, as you know, politically incorrect by calling them Mormons. This is, a, this is an overt example of the kind of, uh, of counterfeit methodology that I'm talking about. According to this article written by Kenneth Woodward, who is who's the uh, religion writer and editor for Newsweek magazine, I've read a number of his things over the last few years, and he's usually pretty insightful, and he's per fairly accurate in a lot of what he says. I don't know his, his background. I don't know if he has any kind of formal seminary training or anything, but he, but he definitely has some, some insightful articles. Well, according to him, two things are going on. Uh, in light of the fact that next year, in the year 2002, Salt Lake City is going to host the Olympics. And as the host of the Olympics, there's going to be a tremendous amount of, of uh, PR work done for the Mormon church. And the first stage started for them. Once they got that, apparently they started going throughout uh, Salt Lake City. And Bryce, you'll probably notice this because you go out there a lot. Uh, they go through uh, Salt Lake City. And they have been taking down all the pictures and statues to Joseph Smith and replacing them with pictures and statues of Jesus Christ. And then, this last summer, they issued a press release informing the media that it was no longer acceptable to refer to them as the Mormons. They are now the Church of Jesus Christ, not even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They are to be referred to simply as the Church of Jesus Christ. So they are going, trying to mask themselves completely in the terminology and the veneer of orthodoxy. And this is exactly the kind of thing that was going on in Judges 17 and 18 when we saw the whole issue with Micah and him getting the Levitical priest who turns out to be a grandson of Moses. So he has Mosaic authenticity, Levitical authenticity, and they set up a competitive idolatry 
idolatrous shrine up in the tribe of Dan that competes with Israel throughout this period. And see, that's this thing with the Mormons is, is an overt thing. But if you look at the, really analyze the theology of, and I know I'm going to step on some toes here, but if you analyze the theology of, well, we won't even go with the Roman Catholic Church. You can, you can read that. Most of you are pretty aware of the problems with Roman Catholicism and how there's so much biblical such a biblical veneer, and yet the core is not biblical. And you see the same thing in, in, in United Methodism, United Presbyterianism, most of what's going on in the Episcopal Church. Now, in all of these groups, there are very small subgroups and subdenominations that maintained a certain conservative orientation that split off. But for the most part, the major denominations, from, Bap- from Baptist to Methodists to Episcopal, major Protestant denominations all got overwhelmed by liberalism in the late 19th century, and they have wrapped themselves in the mantle of a lot of Christian verbiage and terminology, but they don't have a clue what's going on. And as a result of that, they constantly get engaged in pseudo-operations, allegedly under the banner of Christianity. For everything from the World Council of Churches to uh, programs to feed the poor in other countries, and and even back in the 70s and earlier and years like that, you saw that many of those clergymen were out leading the um, anti-war demonstrations. Clearly, because they don't have a clue as to what the Bible teaches about just war, or politics, or anything like that. Then you have among conservatives, among so-called conservatives who are fairly orthodox, let's say, in their doctrinal statements, you have the same thing happen under the guise of legalism. And that's, again, what legalism is. That's exactly what you had with the legalism of the Pharisees. Here you have people like Nicodemus, who was the top Bible teacher of his day, and yet he didn't really understand the Scriptures, but he knows the Scriptures backwards and forwards, has them memorized backwards and forwards, and... Um, and yet there's no, uh, no real understanding of grace, no real understanding of the issues. And that's exactly what happens under legalism is you start, that, that's the first stage in the fall of, uh, of any nation and of any individual is before long they lose their relationship emphasis with God based on the, based on the cross and they end up just focusing on uh, things such as uh, overt observance. And there's no internal observance, and that's why Jesus criticized the Pharisees, because he said they were like, they were like a whitewashed tombstones. They were like a whitewashed grave. It looked good on the outside, but on the inside there was dead men's bones. And this is the picture that we see in Judges 20 and 21 is an analysis of the collapse of the nation. And Judges 19, by way of review, Judges 19 begins with a crisis in the home. There is a marital spat. Uh, that takes place, and it culminates in the complete fragmentation of the nation and the destruction and, al- and the almost extinction of one of the tribes, just because of this one marital spat. So, you know, one principle that we can, we can observe there is, as goes the believer, so goes the nation. And just because you're having some kind of marital problem, don't think that it only affects you and your marriage. Marital problems can affect everybody and can end up affecting the entire nation, as is the example here. And if you take this is one case, and the way the writer writes it, because he doesn't name anyone, 
because they're left nameless, he's implying that this is a, is a representative case of the kinds of things that are happening throughout the nation. And so it's not just one isolated incidence of one marriage problem that then ends up fragmenting the nation, but it is the fact that this is going on throughout the nation and the complete fragmentation and, and almost destruction of the tribe of Benjamin is, is a consequence of an internal spiritual collapse. The crisis begins when this unnamed Levite uh, has his concubine, and incidentally a concubine wasn't just some live-in. A concubine had legal status under the Mosaic Law. She's sort of a second-class wife. Her children were legitimate heirs. She, uh, she could not be ignored. There were certain stipulations about how the husband treated a concubine. She is not simply a prostitute or a mis- mistress. She has a legitimate, uh, legally protected status in the home. Uh, she moves home to, di- to daddy. The fact that, he, that this Levite has a concubine and not a wife says something negative about the spiritual nature of the nation because the Levite's supposed to be the Bible class teacher. And he's not married. He just has a concubine. So he's opting for a second-level responsibility there. So that is something that is, that is not really positive. So from the very beginning, there's a negative tone to this. Even though everything that happens seems to be on the up and up. This guy's trying to keep his marriage together. He's going to do whatever it takes to woo her back. He's going to go to her home after four months and talk to her father and get her back. And she comes back. But what we see, as the more you dig into this text, is there's a lot of superficial obedience to the law. But there's, no, there, there's something missing. There is something at the core that's not, not there. So he goes and stays with his father-in-law. The father-in-law is incredibly hospitable, and they get ready to leave, but the father-in-law talks him into staying for another day and a half. And by this time, it's late in the second day. He, he wants to leave. He's dying to leave. He's overwhelmed by the, response, the uh, hospitality. So he finally tears away from his father-in-law, but it's late in the day, so they can't get very far. And so if we look on the overhead, here's a map. He goes to get her, and then on their return back, they go by Jebus, which is, it's in, which is Jerusalem, and they use the term Jebus because it hasn't been conquered yet by the Jews. It's still a stronghold of the Canaanites. It still represents the enemy. And it's interesting, he says, says we're not going to stay with them. See, there's, there's this idea there that, hey, they're really obeying the law, aren't they? He, the law has forbidden association with foreigners. But he's missing the spirit of the law. That is the reason for the law. He's just superficially following it. Maybe he's really trying to, trying to apply the law. We can't, we, we, don't, we can't say for sure. But he avoids staying overnight in Jebus because it's, it's a violation of the Deuteronomic Code. But see, Deuteronomy doesn't forbid association with foreigners if they're believers. This is what the book of Ruth is all about. And starting here, we're going to start seeing some comparisons because I'm going to go into the book of Ruth when we finish this. And Ruth, it takes place at the same time as these events, which shows us that despite the reversionism and carnality and apostasy in Israel, how there's so much chaos and disruption in the nation and it's fragmenting on the inside, there is nevertheless hope. And that hope is the fact that there are a few believers who are oriented to grace and oriented to doctrine, and there will be recovery from this. God is working in the um, God is working in the nation. So uh, this Levite then doesn't stay in Jebus. Instead, he decides to stay with uh, with uh, those in the Jewish family. 
And so he goes to Gibeah of Benjamin. And there, there's this strange episode that mirrors the, uh, the perversion of Sodom, where they stay in the, they, they come to the uh, town square, they expect somebody to invite them to their home to spend the night, stay at a local bed and breakfast or something, and, and nobody invites them in. Nobody, nobody uh, pays any attention to them except this one man who himself is a foreigner, who himself is, I mean, not a foreigner to Israel, but is, is not native to Gibeah. He is from, also from the hill country of Ephraim, so he invites everybody uh, the, the, the man and his concubine and servant to his house, and he takes care of them and protects them because he knows how evil this town is. And then during the night, the men of the town who have all given themselves over to sexual perversion and sexual deviancy uh, call sodomy, which a uh, modern man wants to call homosexuality, and we covered that doctrine last week. And I want to reemphasize the fact that, that homosexuality is like any other sin. It's a byproduct of the sin nature, just like adultery and murder and trends towards mental attitude sin. It is when a person caves in to that mental, to that overt sin of homosexuality or adultery or murder, what are violence, that it becomes a sin, that it is wrong. And anyone who practices any of those things has no position in leadership in a local church. And we also know from Romans 1 that this is an assault, uh, I mean, excuse me, this is a result of God's judgment on a nation for negative volition. One thing that I also want to emphasize in this, we'll try this once again on the computer, see if we can get a visual up there. It's working. There we go. One thing that, that I want to emphasize on this whole issue with, with, um, of homosexuality is the reason we're making such an issue out of this is not because we're singling out this sin as something that's more sinful and worse than any other sin. But today, in the battle that's taking place today, we have to fight just to establish the fact that it is a sin. That's what we're establishing. Not that it's a worse sin, not that it's a greater sin, not that it's to be singled out more than anything else, but it is a sin. And the pressure today is to to treat it as if it's just somebody's choice, it's just on a, a legitimate um, alternative lifestyle. So we see this situation here that mirrors the episode in Sodom where the Levi turns over his concubine. She's gang-raped throughout the night and then barely drags herself home, apparently dying on the doorstep as she reaches out. It's a tremendous picture of... Uh, of sadness here as she reaches out with one arm just barely reaching the door as she seeks some sort of uh, sucker, some sort of escape, some sort of relief from what has taken place during the night. And there we see that he discovers her body on the doorstep and he comes out and it seems like a rather cold and callous statement that he makes and he sees her there and he says simply, well, get up. And um, I don't know that he said it quite as cold or callously as it comes across, but the author wants to portray it that way because there seems to be a lack of empathy or concern for her as a person at all. She stays in the background. The writer presents this whole thing demonstrating that what happens under apostasy and paganism is that uh, in terms of the relationship of the sexes, the women are the ones who end up being abused. That as much as you try to, and this is a principle we're going to see in the remainder of this episode, 
that as much as you, you try to make an issue under paganism of women's rights and equality and treating women well, there's no spiritual basis for doing so, and the end result is going to be the opposite. It is in the context of pagan feminism that abuse, sexual abuse, marital abuse has increased a thousandfold in this nation. And see, what the irony of this whole thing is at this point, this man is incensed over what's happened to his concubine, that she's been gang-raped overnight by, these, by the men in the town. So he goes home and he cuts her body up into 12 pieces to indicate that this is what's going to happen to the women in your town too if we don't stop this from happening right now. But, but see, as I'm going to point out, there are going to be problems with this. But he's warning the nation that this too is what's going to happen to you if we don't stop it. And so the nation, in self-righteous arrogance, is going to react to this, and they're all going to come together, and they're going to overwhelmingly punish Benjamin. And what's the end result? Well, when we get to the end of, end of this book, in chapter 21, in, in tr- because they have to solve the problems they created by their arrogant solution in chapter 20, they're going to end up uh, kidnapping 400 women from Jabesh Gilead. And don't you know that was the way they wanted to enter into marriage, is to be kidnapped and given to some husband they had never seen before. And then they're going to go to Shiloh, and they're going to kidnap another 200 uh, virgins and give them to the sons of Benjamin. So what happens is, as they're trying to correct this problem in self-righteous arrogance of the abuse of one woman, they end up abusing and raping 600 women. And see, that's always what happens under paganism, is because paganism in human viewpoint can never provide the solution. The human solution is no solution. The only solution is the divine solution. And what happens in the human solution always may analyze the problem and say, this is what we need to do, but because it's functioning on arrogance, it's always going to produce the opposite consequence. And that's exactly what we see in this section. So some important observations. Number one, the name of God is conspicuously absent from chapter 19. In fact, if we look at, at how the terms Elohim for God, the generic term for God, versus the term Lord or Yahweh, which indicates God, God in His covenant relationship to Israel, if we observe the distinction from that, and you can do it in your English Bible because Elohim is usually translated God, G-O-D, lowercase o, lowercase d, and Yahweh in the Hebrew, the sacred tetragrammaton, is always translated with an uppercase L, uppercase O, uppercase R, or uppercase D. In a few cases, you have uh, Adonai Yahweh that's translated Lord God, where God is uppercase and Lord is lowercase to translate Adonai. But if you have that uppercase word for God or Lord, um, in small caps, then you know that that's talking about Yahweh. So you can track that in your text. And it's very important. That's going to be the key to understanding some of the dynamics of what happens in Judges chapter uh, 20. I want to remind you of what had happened here in Israel in terms of apostasy. Judges 2.10 gives us the overview uh, critique of this summary of this entire period. All that generation, that is the Joshua generation, also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know Yahweh. 
That is, emphasize they did not know God as the covenant God of Israel, and that means that they rejected him, their own negative volition, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. That means they had rejected and forgotten and ignored the historical evidences of God's work during the Exodus and following. They had forgotten their historical covenant relationship with God. So they start off at stage one. They're going to start off at stage one under the Joshua generation as positive volition, learning doctrine, and applying doctrine. So we're going to see an analysis of how a nation and an individual collapses. This positive volition then, sooner or later your problems seem to be solved. Their problems seem to be solved. They defeated 80% of the Canaanites. They didn't annihilate them like they were supposed to, but they had basically come to control at least the major strategic points of the land. And so that gradually grows into complacency. Bible class is no longer quite as important as it was. After all, I've heard this for 15 or 20 years. I I, I understand these things, and so you no longer are making it the number one priority. It's easy to let things like your kids' activities or your activities uh, supplant going to Bible class. Well, this week I'll just, I'll miss this week, I'll go do this, or, or next week I'll go do that. And you don't listen to tapes like you once listened to tapes. And a, and a complacency begins to set in because you think that you sort of arrived, you've reached a spiritual plateau, and everything seems to be going pretty well. But what happens in complacency is this is an extremely subtle form of negative volition. Bible doctrine is not number one anymore. It's slipping into number two and then number three. And what happens is that in ne- any form of negative volition, what takes place in the soul is a shift to arrogance. You're now operating more under sin nature control and less under the uh, filling of God the Holy Spirit and application of doctrine. Arrogance always produces preoccupation with self. That is a rule. Arrogance always leads to preoccupation with self, and that means that you start functioning under the, under the arrogant skills. You start with self-absorption. Self-absorption leads to self-indulgence. Self-indulgence leads to self, uh, self-justification. And self-justification then leads to self-deception. And by this time, under self-deception, you're talking a lot about God and your relationship with God, but there's no relationship there anymore. It's all superficial. It's all legalism. It's all nothing more than an overt show on the inside. There's no relationship whatsoever. And this is what develops then into stage two. At stage two, there's the appearance, there's the overt appearance of negative volition. By this time, often you just don't go to church that much. Often you, you never get into the Word, you never think when problems or adversity come into your life, you never think about, well, what does the Scripture say? What are the principles? What promises can I claim? How do I operate under the faith rest drill? And so negative volition sets in, carnality set in, you're no longer solving problems through the stress busters, you're solving problems through human viewpoint techniques, and so there is sin nature control. And with sin nature control, human viewpoint and cosmic thinking, which is the same as paganism, begins to get sucked up into the soul. Now, there's still a veneer of biblical orthodoxy, just like what happened in Judges 17 and 18, where you have... uh, Jonathan, the grandson of Moses, is now this 
priest for this cult up in the tribe of Dan, and they're worshiping a bunch of idols that they've named God. So they're using the name of Yahweh, just like many people today always talk about what would Jesus do, and they talk about Jesus and the cross and everything else, but there's no core Bible doctrine, a correct understanding of Scripture undergirding everything. It's just overt ritual and not internal reality. So what happens then is that religion replaces relationship. Religion replaces relationship. And by that I mean that emphasis is now on overt things, it's now on works, it's now on going to church or not going to church, on having that show. And this is what happens with many people. They talk about the fact that they go to church all the time, and uh, but there's no real positive volition. Maybe they're in the choir, maybe they're teaching Sunday school, but they're involved in a lot of activities, but they're not positive anymore. Uh, Religion replaces that relationship with God, that ongoing relationship. Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. In order to keep his commandments, his mandates and prohibitions, you have to know them. And we have to be reminded of them week in and week out. So religion replaces relationship. Ritual replaces reality. And so you go through, as they did in Israel, you have the overt sacrifices, you have this temple, you have this uh, 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 shrine up in the north, and you get engaged in the ritual and you think that just because you've wrapped it in the mantle of biblically orthodox terminology that everything's okay. So ritual replaces reality. And third, excessive concern with the letter of the law replaces grace orientation. That's what we're going to see in chapters 20 and 21. Excessive concern with the letter of the law replaces any concept of grace orientation. Self-arrogance self, um, always produces self-righteousness. And when self-righteousness dominates, you get, especially on the legalistic side, when the, when the sin nature is in control, it always produces a, a concern for excessive um, uh, legal obedience. And in some sense, that's where we are today. You can see it, the trend nationally, at times with an excessive concern with the legalities of situations, and what happens is criminals go free, politicians who commit crimes go, go uh, unchecked and unhindered, and, uh, and this just sort of continues because we did everything legally, everything was by the book, but somehow the, the uh, criminals and those who, who broke the law and broke the rules go, go free, and those who don't end up being those who perhaps brought things to somebody's attention are the ones that become castigated. So there is a reversal there that takes place. So in arrogance, self-righteousness dominates. False doctrine and false priorities begin to invade and dominate the soul. And the result of that will always generate mental attitude sins. You can count on it. Arrogance is a mental attitude sin. But certain other mental attitude sins always accompany arrogance, bitterness. We become bitter when things don't go the way we think they should, and that, and, and it develops jealousy and hostility and vindictiveness. And we're going to see the hostility and vindictive aspect in Judges 20 and 21. As self-righteous indignation dominates when wrongs, either real or perceived, develop, 
then vindictiveness flourishes. So what happens is you think you've been rejected, you think you've been wronged, real or imagined, it doesn't matter. You react to that offense by taking offense, and you always take offense. People in a self-righteous, arrogant culture are always hypersensitive, and they get offended at the least little things. And if you notice, that's true in our culture today, that, that in America there are many things that were inoffensive, uh, 20 or 30 years ago, and now they are offensive now. You just try to mention the name of God in any public school classroom, and you will find out just how offensive you have become because you were trying to talk about God or the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can talk about the Mormons, and you can talk about uh, Muslim, and over in New York they even allowed the Muslims to take time off during school, and the teachers found places for them to, to have their prayers during Ramadan last year. But it doesn't matter. Christians certainly can't even have a, quote, five-day club on campus after, after school. So that's the, the arrogance there, the vindictiveness, and the hypersensitivity that occurs as a result of, of um, arrogant control. Now, that's stage two. Then we come to stage three. Stage two is the appearance of negative volition, and it's... it's uh, and all, all that goes along with that. Then you get to stage four. And at stage four, you've converted the outside pressure of adversity. And in this case, it's the, the adversity is the criminality in Gibeah. So what happens nationally is they convert the outside pressure of criminality into stress in the, in the soul of the nation. This is where I make an application. Sin nature control of, of the nation tries to solve the problem on its own. But man can't solve problems apart from grace. The human solution is no solution. And so when they try to solve their problem on their own apart from God, what they do is they create more problems. And that always happens. When you face problems in your life and you try to solve them from human viewpoint rationalizations and not divine viewpoint solutions of the stress busters, it's always going to result not only in fragmentation in your life, but it's going to end up producing more and more problems and a complete breakdown of any relationship with God. And then in stage four, in arrogance, what we see here nationally, in arrogance, the nation's going to polarize. The nation's going to polarize because arrogance and self-righteousness always create some sort of reaction. And in arrogance and self-righteousness, they're going to overreact to the problem in Gibeah, and their solution is going to be ten times more intense than the divinely authorized punishment in, under the Mosaic Law. And because it is so much harsher, it's going to create another pro major problem and trauma in the life of the nation. And then the way they so try to solve that problem is just as hideous and just as wicked, if not worse, than the original crime that they're trying to, to, to solve. So I've just outlined in terms of important observations, the observations of what's happening dynamically in terms of the spiritual life of the nation. Second thing that I want to emphasize is we see a complete disregard for women. As paganism increases, despite all of the verbiage of feminism, what's, what always happens is that women become uh, the victims. Women are, become the victims because they no longer understand their divinely ordained role 
Men have a role and women have a role. That doesn't mean one's better or one's less than the other. They have distinct roles. And when males and females are, do not understand their biblically outlined role, then they're operating outside that role and they're never going to experience all that God has for them. And what happens in this situation is they start off being concerned about this woman who's a victim, and then they end up having virtually raping 600 other women to solve the problem of the original rape. And then the third thing is that we see the sexual perversion in Benjamin, which is typical of any nation which deteriorates into apostasy and reversionism. This sexual perversion of sodomy is always typical of any nation that has already deteriorated into apostasy and reversionism. So we turn to the end of of chapter 19 and we see that uh, the statement in verse 29, when he entered his house, when he got home, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and, and cut her in 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. Now last time I looked at the passage over in 1 Samuel chapter 11 verse 7 where Saul did this but with an ox. And the message is, apparently this was considered a call to arms, to a, to a national convocation, to a muster of the troops. And it, it contained an implicit warning, and that is that if you don't come together, this was like a national draft, if you don't come together, this is what we're going to do to you. In other words, you can't be a draft dodger because you're going to, you're going to die. And it's a picture, it's cut up into 12 pieces because if the nation as a whole doesn't come together and handle and resolve these problems as a unit, then the result is going to be that the nation's going to be fragmented. And so there's, there's an implied, uh, there, there, there's an implication here of what will happen to the nation. The thing is that Saul's brutal enough by cutting up an oxen, an ox into 12 pieces. But cutting up the, the concubine's body into 12 pieces is excessive. I mean, it, it just it shows, the, it shows a complete disrespect for her body. Even in the Scriptures, even though in, throughout Christianity and Judaism, the body's important because it's the home for the soul. It's not irrelevant. And so even in death, it's treated with respect. But there's no respect here for her body, for her as a person anymore. He's concerned about the fact that she's been mistreated and that has besmirched his honor. There's, a, there's an underlying level of arrogance here. This guy's not really concerned about her. She's the occasion for the fact that he's been insulted. And he's going to call the tribes together. Now, this, this whole episode here and the, the insensitivity of Gibeah towards this woman is a reminder to us of something that happened over, over 30 years ago, well, almost 40 years ago in this nation. Some of you may remember this. In, in 1964, a young woman who, was a, who, who um, uh, worked in a bar in a fairly middle-class area, Queens, New York, re- returned home about 3 in the morning. And as she got out of her car, parked her car down the street, and was walking to her, her uh, uh, apartment home, there was a man standing out on the street. And she got worried and started to run from him. And he chased her, stabbed her to death, and raped her. This occurred in 1964 in Queens, New York. Her name was Kitty Genovese. And over 38 people witnessed this attack. They heard her scream. She awakened them at night. They had their windows open. They heard her scream. They witnessed the attack. They looked outside. They closed their windows, pulled the drape shut, and went back to sleep. 
and no one did a thing. The attack lasted over 30 minutes before she was finally, before she finally came, uh, before she finally died. No one came to her rescue, and finally one person, after about 40 minutes, called the police, and by that time it was too late. She was already dead. This is a classic case been studied by sociologists and criminologists in this country as to why people don't respond. And this just shows that America is in the same situation. I mean, the same things that are happening in Judges 19 are happening here day in and day out in this nation. We are no better than Israel is at this nadir of their spiritual life. This brutal act becomes proverbial in, in Israel. In fact, if you get the chance, you can look up Hosea 9.9 and 10.9. In Hosea 9.9 and 10.9, the prophets have reminded Israel of the, this low point in their, in, their, in their history. In Hosea 9.9, uh, Hosea is condemning the nation for their apostasy during his time. And he says, they have gone deep in depravity as in the days of Gibeah. This is the low point. It doesn't get any worse than this. He says, he will remember, that is, God will remember their iniquity and God will remember their sins. And then in Hosea 10.9, Hosea says, From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. And so this is a proverb. It becomes a standard, um, a standard representation of how uh, apostate Israel has been. So this Levitical priest sends out her butchered body in order to muster the troops, to call them to a military convocation. And the irony here is that, that at the end of this story, one city doesn't come. One city doesn't send anybody in response to this. And the result is that their men and women are murdered and their virgin daughters are forcibly married off to the survivors of Benjamin. Now, there are two reasons when we look at this. It has this veneer of legitimacy. The man's been wronged. There's been a criminal act. She's been abused. She's a victim. Something ought to be done about this. What's wrong with what's going on here? He's going to call the nation to arms. Aside from the fact that this is an extremely coarse and brutal and non-Mosaic authorized way of calling the troops together, we have two other reasons that this is wrong. First of all, under the Mosaic law, who has the right to call the tribes together? Who has the right to call for a universal draft and to pull the army together? Only the judge and the king. Only a divinely authorized leader in the nation, not some unnamed Levite. He does not have the right to do this. But he is, in his self-righteous arrogance, as he's responding to his, to, to his trauma and his stress, he's completely become self-absorbed with this problem. And my problem's so bad, the whole nation's got to, take, got to look at this. And we see the same. Just watch the, just watch the morning talk show sometime. You see the same thing morning after morning till you're bilious. How some persons, some individuals' personal problems are blown up and given national attention, and all they are is a bunch of whiny crybabies who are so self-absorbed with what's gone wrong in their life that they want everybody in the nation to solve their problem. See, we're no different. We're just as arrogant and self-absorbed as, as, as Israel was at this time. So this guy is going to call... Everyone in the nation together, and 400,000 men are going to show up. That's a huge army. I mean, he's mobilized the nation. He's making his personal crisis a national crisis. 
So the problem with this is, first of all, there is this autonomous claim to authority. He thinks he has the right to run the nation. The second thing that we see here is that, that um, the response of the people is going to exceed the crime. The crime is that one woman has been gang-raped by the men in one town in Gibeah. But their response is going to exceed the crime. Now let's look at their response in verse 1 of chapter 20. Then all the sons of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, north to south, the entire nations united here, including the land of Gilead, that's from across the Jordan. So if we look at the map on the overhead, the Jordan is on the right-hand border of that map. And so everyone in the nation is going to gather... And they gather at Mizpah. And Mizpah is located, this Mizpah on this side of the Jordan is located. Here is Jebus down here in the south. This is Jerusalem. Bethlehem south of here. They are going to come to Mizpah, which is located somewhere in this vicinity. Here's the River Jordan. This, is, this little blue area to the north is the Sea of Galilee. This little blue area to the south you can barely see is the uh, uh, Dead Sea. And so in between, you have the River Jordan. So Mizpah is located on the Cisjordan side, that is the, in the land of Israel, located right about in this area. And they're all going to gather before the Lord. And this has significance because Mizpah has a historical relationship because of it, uh, at times the nation had gathered there to worship the Lord. Verse 2, And the chiefs of all the people, even of all the tribes of Israel, took their stand in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. So you have 400,000 infantry show up. Verse 3, Now the sons of Benjamin heard that the sons of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the sons of Israel said, Tell us, how did this wickedness take place? So they're asking the Levi, Okay, state your case. Now he's going to state his case. Excuse me, he's going to state his case, and then he's going to state his case, and then they are going to seek information. But I want you, before we get there, we have to look at the background in Deuteronomy chapter 13. They are following Deuteronomic procedures at this point. At this point. But they're not going to follow it all the way through. So we have to understand why they're doing what they're doing. There is a biblical basis for this. It's the, but once again, it's the overt observance of the law. They're going to be following the spirit of the law and not the, I mean, the, the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. They are not following, uh, are implementing grace at all in this procedure. And there is grace in the law. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 12. If you hear in one of your cities, notice, in one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, anyone saying that some worthless men, that is, sons of Belial, and these men who committed this rape have already been designated in Judges as sons of Belial. That's why they're called sons of Belial and Judges. And so you will think in terms of this principle in Deuteronomy 13. Some sons of Belial have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of the city, saying, let us go and serve other gods. Now, the, the sons of Belial in Judges... We're not trying to take the people into idolatry. That's where comparing Scripture to Scripture comes in. Romans 1.21 tells us that before you get into the rampant homosexuality, you've already exchanged the worship of God for the worship of the Creator. That precedes it. 
So the sons of Belial here, they're idolatrous men who are into sexual perversion, seducing the inhabitants spiritually and physically. And then verse 14, Then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. That's the principle. It's a sound legal principle. Make sure there's a case. Get all the evidence together. Don't run off emotionally. Don't make a, an off-the-cuff re- reaction out of vengeance. Go out, get all the facts, and make sure you have a case. And if it is true, and the matter established that this abomination has been done to you, then, that's what's implied in the text, if you establish the case, then this is what you must do. It's a mandate. It's an imperative. Then you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it and all that is in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. That's what's called harem, where we get our word harem for when you when a uh, in the ancient world and even today when when a man had many wives, that was called his harem, and he was protected. It was set apart. And that's what you were to do, is set apart this city for God. And it was supposed to be set apart and destroyed. And this was the principle of holy war. Now, the Bible recognizes two kinds of war, holy war and just war. And in holy war, everything, man, woman, child, cattle, sheep, were to be killed and the city burned to the ground. There's no vengeance. There's no getting uh, any kind of spoil from the city. This is the problem that occurred during the conquest at Ai is that, that some of the men had taken spoil, so they're in carnality. And because that sin was not dealt with and recognized, in other words, was not confessed, that when they went into battle at Ai, they lost. Now, the reason that's important is because this is exactly what's going to happen in Judges 20. When, when the nation first attacks Benjamin, they're going to have tremendous losses. In the first battle, they lose 22,000 men. Folks, what did we lose in Vietnam? Sixty-something thousand? Twenty-two thousand. That's a tremendous loss. So they go back. What, what went wrong? Well, the problem was, just like at AI, they're still in carnality. They're trying to solve the problem on their own, uh, on their own energy. But what happens here is they're supposed to seek, in Deuteronomy 13, 14, there's supposed to be a court-held objective evaluation of the evidence and then complete destruction of what? The city. But what's going to happen in Judges 20 is they don't destroy just, just Gibeah. They wipe out almost the whole tribe of Benjamin till there's only 600 males left. You see, that's overreaction. That's, this is the same kind of thing. You, civil war is some of the most hideous. I'd love to take the time to do a study of civil wars in history. Civil wars are the most destructive because they usually pit family against family, brother against brother, father against son, just as what's happened in, in our own uh, war between the states. And it, it split many families, especially in the border states. But this is the same dynamic that happened in the U.S. Think in terms of broad trends. In the 16, 1600s and 1700s, this nation had a predominantly biblical orientation to life. That doesn't mean everybody was saved, and that doesn't mean they did everything right, but it had predominantly a biblical orientation. There were a tremendous numbers saved during the First Great Awakening in the 1740s, and it was in that context that you eventually had the birth of the nation in the 1770s. And then what happened? With this, my, my view is that with the Second Great Awakening, you had the insertion of, of uh, legalism. 
Second Great Awakening had more heresy involved with it than you can imagine. One of the foremost preachers was a guy named Charles Grandison Finney. He was an evangelist out of New York. He rejected the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He, re- he was a post-millennialist. He believed in the perfectibility of man. He rejected total depravity. He believed man could be perfected and so could society. And so as a result of that, you have Finney and the Christian activists on the one hand and the transcendental activists on the other hand go into abolitionism, which was a self-righteous reaction to the problem of slavery. You did not have that dynamic across the pond in England. In England, the abolitionist movement was led by evangelical believers like Granville Sharp and William Wilberforce, who believed in the total depravity of man, substitutionary atonement of Christ, and were grace-oriented. And when grace orientation operates, the result was what? The result was the abolition of slavery, the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire, and it didn't fragment the empire. But in the U.S., what you had is a self-righteous re- reaction of arrogance, just like you have here in, in uh, Deuteronomy, uh, just like you have here in Judges chapter 20, and it fragmented the nation. Because on the one hand, you had those who were wrong, operating on, on a false theology, the spiritual arrogance and self-righteousness in the north, and it produced the equal and opposite reaction among the idiot hotheads in the south, and the result was it blew the nation apart. And the point I'm making is that national trends are the result of bad or good theology. Ultimately, the causative factor in your life and my life is theology and our relationship with God. As goes the believer, so goes the nation. When the believer gets involved in legalism and the superficialities of legalism in the 19th century, evangelical church in this country was loaded with legalism. It was just a front. It was just a veneer. Now, there were clearly some good things that happened, especially in the late 19th century among evangelicals. But in the middle part, following the Second Great Awakening up into the post-Civil War period, you have this same dynamic. It happens again and again and again in history, and we're going to see how it works out in the battles, the Civil War that occurs in Judges 20, and the horrible ending in Judges 21 when we come... I knew I couldn't finish it this morning. When we come back next week. But we have to understand, I mean, the implications and application of this for the believer's life and for our understanding of national issues is profound. And the fact is that nobody ever teaches this stuff anymore. I don't know anybody that's ever gone through these chapters and taught, taught these chapters in Judges and made this kind of application before. And that is simply because, and it's not that it's not there, there's certainly, it's certainly available in a few commentaries, but people just don't want to get into this kind of stuff. We let you stick with the cross and let you stick with a few spiritual life issues and uh, not get into these real hardcore issues that challenge us to the depths of our souls and give us a basis for critically evaluating what goes on in our nation. We have to do this. So next time we'll come back and we'll probably wrap it up as we see the, the, the damaging destruction of arrogance in the nation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to, to look at your word and to gain these insights, to be able to look at history as you look at history, because that then teaches us how to look at the history that's being uh, developed around us in our contemporary time and to be able to evaluate it from a divine viewpoint framework. It also helps us to see what the real issues are in our spiritual life and the danger of, of letting doctrine slip from that position of being the highest priority in our life.
Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied and that we could see how to apply them. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.